Welcome to the Fabulously Keto podcast aimed at improving health, vitality and quality of life. Eating real food in a ketogenic lifestyle. I'm Jackie Fletcher and I'm based in the UK. And I'm Louise Reynolds, an Aussie currently based in Bangkok, Thailand. Each week we will be bringing you guests who share their stories and discuss a range of topics which we hope will improve your health and well-being. Many of the guests, like us, came to Keto for Weight Loss and have stayed for their well-being, numerous health benefits and because they are living their best lives. We hope you will be inspired to incorporate these ideas into your own health journey so that you can feel better than you ever have before. Thinking about starting keto? Take a listen to episode number two, What is Keto and How to Start? Welcome to the Fabulously Keto podcast, episode 71. And today I'm interviewing Lily Nichols. Now, Lily was recommended to Louise and I by Dr. Chris Barkley back in episode six and seven at the end of 2020. And it's taken us a while to get her on the show. Lily is a registered dietitian who specializes in pregnancy and gestational diabetes. And whilst she isn't keto or low carb, she focuses on whole foods and real food. And that in itself often tends towards a lower carb uh, way of eating. I think you'll find this a really interesting topic. It's not one that we've covered before. So I hope you enjoy this episode. And before we head over to the actual interview, let me tell you a little bit about Lily. Lily Nichols is a registered dietitian and nutritionist, certified diabetes educator, researcher and author with a passion for evidence-based prenatal nutrition. Her work is known for being research-focused, thorough and critical of outdated dietary guidelines. She is co-founder of the Women's Health Nutrition Academy and author of two books, Real Food for Pregnancy and Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. Lily's best-selling books have helped tens of thousands of mamas and babies and are used in university-level maternal nutrition and midwifery courses and have influenced prenatal nutrition policy internationally. She writes at lilynicholsrdn.com. Welcome, Lily, to the Fabulously Keto podcast. It's fabulous to have you with us today. Thank you for inviting me. I'm really excited about today's podcast. So we always start with where in the world are you? Sure thing. Yeah, I'm in the US and currently in the Midwest. Excellent. So um, our next question generally is, how did you, I know you, you focus more on real food, but real food quite often tends to be low carb, doesn't it? It does sort of uh, works out that way, doesn't it? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) When you eat real food, it's funny how that works. Um, How did you arrive at being a low real food advocate? Yeah, so I have been interested in nutrition really my whole life. I decided as a teen that I wanted to study nutrition at university. Um, And so I was really fortunate to have come across the whole like ancestral perspective on nutrition via uh, the writings of Sally Fallon and um, Weston Price's book from like the twenties and thirties, nutrition and physical degeneration. Um, So I was introduced to those before I even started my university studies and I had already gone through the, you know, I'm going to be healthy and be vegetarian and then have my health decline rapidly and then start reintroducing animal foods and start um, really embracing eating more like high fat animal foods and just noticing the difference in, in how I felt as somebody who had pretty much always struggled with reactive hypoglycemia. Um, so that already like colored, colored the lens through which I view nutrition before I even went through university studies. And then by the time I was there, you know, I was studying to be a dietitian, you get, you get into it enough and you're like, well, I may as well just finish, finish it out, finish out the credential. Um, 
even though, you know, I knew a lot of what I was learning was industry sponsored. Um, and I, I knew already a lot of my textbooks were outdated because the benefit of being a student is you have access to all the medical journals. So I was already pretty voraciously reading uh, the scientific literature while I was at school, um, both like cross-checking what was in my textbooks that seemed to be counterintuitive to what I had learned from like ancestral, you know, sources, mm-hmm. um, as well as to what I had experienced personally in my own health. Uh, so I kind of use school as a chance to push the boundaries a little bit on certain topics um, and to dive into nutrients in a little more detail. And so by the time I was done with my training, done with my clinical dietetic internship, it, it was very clear to me that I would be practicing more from like a real food focus. It really wasn't until I started working in the gestational diabetes and pregnancy space that I got a little more into the low carb side of things because it was there that I was observing how poorly the guidelines were working for my clients. Um, So I often say, you know, did they fail diet therapy, which is what is often written in the chart, or did diet therapy fail them? Um, And I personally found that, you know, the guidelines were very much so a mismatch for that particular diagnosis. And I know we can talk about that in more detail today. Um, But that's really how I got, got going. So I had a bit of an early start, there was no like I was, you know, preaching don't eat saturated fat and salt is going to kill you. Like I'd never even had to practice that way because I had already had my eyes opened to how backwards it was. And then personally had experienced the dramatic um, improvement in my own health from letting go of those things, um, you know, as a teenager, even. Yeah. So it must've been quite a challenge being at university or college, as you call it, um, and having to learn what they're teaching you but deep down knowing that it's wrong because I'm guess you had to give the answers that they wanted to hear well yeah you learn how to you learn how to test your way uh through things um and like I said you know anytime we had special projects I would often choose a really uh controversial topic (laughs) so um doing you know special projects on uh Let's see what I did one on like Splenda not being healthy. And this was in the era of Splenda was a pretty new sweetener and everybody thought it was the best thing ever. Um, Now we have so much data, additional data that I could have added into those, uh, to those presentations, but I'd often choose projects that could help me kind of push the bounds a little bit of people's understanding of things, but you can't do it so much that your professor's don't like you. So it's a fine balance. And sometimes the right answer is to just smile and nod your way through, get through the training and, you know, know that you can practice differently when you're out in the real world. Yeah. I think we've all learned on some level how to do that when we're with other people, you know, but fruit's good for you and you just nod and smile and inside go, well, if you think that that's fine. (laughs) Yeah some fruits are okay and it depends how many you're eating and how much you're eating but in context context yeah a lot of things there's a lot of uh there's a lot of ifs in in nutrition a lot of exceptions to the rules right (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah so and and the other great one that people say is everything in moderation and it's Mm -hmm. like "Mm, yeah okay if you can Mm -hmm. take it if you can moderate it one and if you can if your body could adjust to that is another, there's all sorts of things going on. So you started out um, already focusing on real food. What led you to specialize in pregnancy and gestational diabetes? It was actually a little bit by accident that I fell into this line of work. Um, I certainly had always been intrigued by the idea that I had read in Price's work of preconception and pregnancy nutrition being such a focus among traditional cultures and how that could impact the health of the children and even the grandchildren. So this like concept of epigenetics um, from his observations really stuck with me. Um, 
So that had always been something I was interested in, but there happened to be an opportunity to work with the California Diabetes and Pregnancy Program to work on essentially the gestational diabetes guidelines and really managing any type of diabetes in pregnancy. And I had seen gestational diabetes just a little bit in practice, but not um, definitely was not the sole focus of my work. So it was really interesting to work with them from a, you know, nutrition guidelines capacity. Um, and then also at the same time, I was working clinically at a perinatology office. So a OBGYN who specializes in high risk pregnancies as their dietitian and diabetes educator. So to kind of compare and contrast, like, this is what the research says, this is what the guidelines say, this is what works in practice or doesn't work. Um, it was very interesting to see it from all of those different lenses. Um, and I certainly became really passionate about it over time because I, I had been unaware previously that if a woman has poorly controlled blood sugar during pregnancy, her child can face a much higher risk of type two diabetes later in life, anywhere from a six to 19 fold increased risk wow. by the time they're teenagers, by the way. So this is like early onset type two diabetes. And if we can manage blood sugar better, um, you avoid this problem or significantly reduce that risk, at least for the child, because it comes down to how their pancreatic development and whole blood sugar management, insulin resistance, uh, their whole metabolism is really programmed in utero and in early childhood. So that had sort of a, that was profound for me because earlier when I was deciding to go into nutrition, I thought, it would be really helpful to focus on childhood nutrition guidelines and improving like the school lunch program in the U S seeing this like dramatic increase in diabetes and obesity in children. Like this is terrible. We have to improve their food. And then to see like, Oh my gosh, this goes all the way back to pregnancy, arguably even preconception. Holy cow. That's like the smoking gun. That's the two birds with one stone. And that's honestly like, you have to hit it from that angle because if these children are so severely predisposed to these adverse health outcomes, we're never going to make a dent in the diabetes and obesity epidemic that we have going mm -hmm. on. And pregnancy is a time when women are by far the most motivated ever to make healthy lifestyle changes. You know, when you know that it can impact your baby, that is the most motivating factor ever. <laughs> so it was, it's also a, an ideal time, I think, to intervene because it's like challenging to get people to think about preconception health sometimes, or by the time you're middle-aged or, you know, as a mom of two young children myself, it's hard to like get them to eat well all the time. Like once they're exposed to sugar, you know, it's difficult. And so if we can set them up to have better metabolic health going into childhood, and yes, of course, continuing as best as we can to feed them healthy foods, like they're set up for a lifetime of better health versus a child born to a mother with very poor metabolic health, you know, super elevated blood sugar. It's like you can feed them as good as you want, and there's still going to be an underlying increased risk for disease later in life. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's already, it's already been functioning. So exactly. It's better to get, get it early. So um, if a mum has gestational diabetes, you've said that there's, there's an increased risk of six to 19 fold of the child getting diabetes. If she was then to postnatally change the way she eats and was to get pregnant again, how would that affect the next child? Would they be more likely to still more likely to have uh, diabetes or is she setting them well, off on a good path? Theoretically, if her metabolic health and blood sugar regulation is better in a subsequent pregnancy, she A, may not even develop gestational diabetes or B, if she's able to manage it well, really keep an eye on her blood sugar and and match her food and lifestyle choices to really optimal you know, blood sugar regulation it's, it's a much better uh, metabolic outcome for baby. Um, and we see this firsthand in like rates of uh, gestational weight gain. 
as well as baby's um, birth weight. So a low, lower glycemic index diet or a lower carbohydrate diet often results in significantly less weight gain um, during pregnancy that tends to be tied pretty closely to glycemia as well. I mean, some weight gain during pregnancy is absolutely normal and a lot depends on where your weight was going into pregnancy, how much is healthy for you to gain or not. But nonetheless, we're talking like extremes here, right? So sometimes I'll have women who gained, you know, 60 pounds in their first pregnancy, they had gestational diabetes, their baby was large and went hypoglycemic at birth and complications and blah, blah, blah. They really try to implement as much, you know, real food, no excessive refined carbs and sugars, moving their body a little more, come into their second pregnancy with better metabolic health. And then they'll reach out to me and be like, you know, somehow I only gained 25 pounds this pregnancy. And I had a eight pound, three ounce baby instead of a 10 pound baby this time. And like everything went so smoothly and I didn't get any swelling towards the end of pregnancy. These things that just seem absolutely impossible because their first pregnancy was so challenging and uncomfortable um, that we absolutely do see that happen. Um, Of course there is like, you know, I, I talk about gestational diabetes being like the warning light coming on in your car because it is a sign that your body has trouble adapting to, um, you know, an increase in insulin resistance. You're naturally going to have insulin resistance go up in late pregnancy, whether or not your body can overcome that by uh, pumping out more uh, insulin. And it really depends on what level of, you know, baseline insulin resistance was going on um, coming into pregnancy. But if your body has trouble adapting to that, that is the number one predictor of type two diabetes, uh, developing later in life is having gestational diabetes in a pregnancy. And so we do know, like, if, you know, there might be some challenges there. And so there is a high prevalence of, if you have gestational diabetes in one pregnancy, it's likely to reoccur in another pregnancy. Um, however, I know a lot of people who defy that statistic and manage to not have blood sugar issues in a, in a subsequent pregnancy. So, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of variables and factors there. Yeah. And I think we, we should probably back up a little bit and go back to, um, for the listeners, that is what, what actually causes gestational diabetes? Are they already on a path to type two diabetes and this has exacerbated it? Or can you tell us a bit about what's happening yeah, uh, so- for them at the time before they're diagnosed with it? Right. And gestational diabetes is elevated blood sugar in pregnancy. And we can't really define uh, when it started if we don't have any other kind of baseline data. You know, if somebody comes in with a pre-pregnancy or first trimester hemoglobin A1C, then sometimes you can see like, oh, this person was actually pre-diabetic. So this was a pre-existing insulin resistance issue. Um, or maybe their A1C preconception was totally normal and the blood sugar issues only start in the very, towards the very end of pregnancy. That in my mind would be more of like a true gestational diabetes diagnosis and that this is something that came on as a result of all the physiological changes during pregnancy. So the placenta pumps out more hormones that interfere with the action of insulin. In other words, making you insulin resistance, you naturally gain weight during pregnancy, and maybe like your body's not able to adapt to produce enough insulin to overcome that and still maintain normal blood sugar levels. In my mind, that's what most people think gestational diabetes is. Mm -hmm. And that is a subset. Um, However, as somebody who's worked clinically, where we screened in the first trimester with A1C, because that's highly predictive of whether or not somebody will quote test positive for gestational diabetes in later pregnancy. I personally believe that the majority of gestational diabetes cases are actually an underlying insulin resistance issue that was pre-existing. In other mm-hmm. words, it's pre-diabetes and we simply don't, we don't screen widely the population for pre-diabetes, right? But once you get pregnant, they start getting like, okay, we need to check your blood sugar. And the thresholds for elevated blood sugar are more stringent during pregnancy because naturally your blood sugar levels are meant to trend lower 
in pregnancy than outside of pregnancy. So we catch more mild blood sugar issues than we do if we're just testing the general population. And Mm. most of that is because we're not doing that testing, right? So it's the first time that they've ever um, seen that there could be an issue there. Um, And so that's, that's a big one. And there are some guidelines that like the California Diabetes and Pregnancy Program, for example, they do recommend universal screening with hemoglobin A1C in the first trimester. So you can see who's coming into pregnancy pre-diabetic. And we treat that as if it's gestational diabetes. We still call it gestational diabetes, but that is like a different etiology than elevated blood sugar that is literally only happening at the end of pregnancy. Yeah. So I'm, I'm guessing because the people that are coming in pregnant are probably a lot younger than other people that are going to see their primary care physicians or their doctors. Um, therefore they probably haven't had a, a blood test. They, right. they probably wouldn't know that they, they're possibly pre-diabetic or heading in that direction. Absolutely. So then this is the first time it's being caught. Exactly. Yeah. Um, So are you seeing more people with gestational diabetes now than previously? That is going up. The rates are definitely going up, particularly the last 20 years. And it mirrors the rise in prediabetes and type 2 diabetes. Like a 2015 study from JAMA Journal of the American Medical Association found that it's like 49 to 52% of American adults have some form of blood sugar regulation issue, whether prediabetes or type 2 diabetes. And most of those issues are undiagnosed. So a lot of this is subtle, right? Because blood sugar issues are on a spectrum and it often takes years of there being like an insulin regulation problem elevated insulin and insulin resistance before you see it show up in the blood sugar. sugar yeah. And so this is, it, it mirrors what's happening population wide with rates of type two diabetes and prediabetes, honestly. Um, and I think it does people a disservice to not talk about how this often does tie into something that was going on beforehand, because if you only think it's an issue during pregnancy and then just goes away after the baby is born and you don't have to worry about it anymore, you're missing a very important time to really take ownership of what's going on with your health, because it's not fate or destiny that you're going to develop type two diabetes. Like usually we're catching it early enough that this is something that you can really significantly impact without lifelong blood sugar medication or insulin. um, And it doesn't have to end up with type two diabetes. It can be something that you kind of keep an eye on, you know, I know this system doesn't work hundred percent. So I'm going to pay a little more attention to how many carbohydrates I eat at meals. I'm going to make sure I pair those carbohydrates with other foods that prevent a more significant blood sugar spike. I'm going to be a little more active. I'm going to make sure I get enough of nutrients that help with my, you know, blood sugar management, insulin resistance, like my vitamin D levels where they need to be, make sure I'm getting enough magnesium and so on. These are things that you can do proactively. And then it doesn't have to end up as like this dire situation where you're, you know, on insulin injections for the rest of your life. So in a way, the women are probably in a better position to catch prediabetes before, before it's too late. They've, they've had yeah. this warning and now they can, they choose to, they can do something about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it's a good way. Yeah. So do you find most of your clients come to you already with gestational diabetes or are they coming before, you know, pre-pregnancy for pre-pregnancy nutrition or peri-pregnancy nutrition? How, where do most of your clients come from? Most of them come when they're already pregnant, to be honest. It's, it's always a challenge to, this is like across all healthcare. It's always a challenge to hit the importance of preconception health. And just generally speaking, not everybody, um, but for a lot of women, you're not really thinking that your diet has much impact on anything until you're pregnant. And then once you're pregnant, it's like, 
oh no, stakes are higher now. I don't want to do anything that could hurt my baby. Right. Um, so naturally I think that results in most people coming to me when they're already pregnant. Mm -hmm. I will say because I've talked about preconception health so much. And, you know, I also have in, in addition to my gestational diabetes book, real food for gestational diabetes, I also have a general pregnancy book, real food for pregnancy. I have more people who are concerned about preventing pregnancy complications and looking to improve their health preconception or between pregnancies, if they had a challenging pregnancy before. And so like, as the years have gone on, I do have more people who are more, you know, concerned about preconception health, but I think across like the spectrum of healthcare, that's pretty unusual. Um, that's very much like, a just the nature of, of the people who are attracted to my work tend to be really into nutrition. They're like kind of nutrition nerds or healthcare professionals who have some sort of work, um, in the perinatal space. And so they're, they're automatically more health conscious individuals. Yeah. So do you, do you get, um, recommendations from healthcare professionals or do people tend to look for you themselves because they're not getting the answers they need within the healthcare space? Uh, a little bit of both. Um, I'm not currently taking on one-on-one -on -one clients. I do support women with gestational diabetes in, in an online course where we have like, you know, office hours in a, in a Facebook group where I can answer, answer people's questions. But I do a little more in like the group um, setting now and more on like training other professionals via the Women's Health Nutrition Academy and other places. Um, but I would say for the most part, people who are, you know, seeking my help or joining my course, it's because they have gotten information from their healthcare provider or hospital nutrition class. And it just doesn't jive with their worldview on nutrition and or didn't work. Like they gave me this meal plan at the hospital gestational diabetes class and I followed it and my blood sugar got worse. Uh, and then somehow I came across your work or somebody recommended it to me. And like, here I am, I don't want to go on medication or insulin. I'm having this particular issue and I want to like nip it in the bud. Um, that's more the demographic. I think that's attracted to my work um, at this point, hmm. you know, previously working clinically, it, it was you know, anybody, any, anyone who the doctor thinks needs to see me gets referred to me, whether they want to be there or not. Um, and that's a different demographic and a different, you know, level of um, Commitment, motivation. I guess. We yeah. can still do a lot there too, but it's just a, it's a different um, uh, clientele with a different like level of background understanding of health, or even an acknowledgement that there's any um, other way to approach nutrition outside of whatever the guidelines are telling us to eat, you know? Yeah. When someone seeks it out for themselves, they're more likely to, to act on it rather than just being told yeah, it. Absolutely. So what would you say is the impact if some, if a, if a woman has got gestational diabetes, can we just go a little bit more into the impact on the baby? Sure. Yep. So most of the issues associated with gestational diabetes are really relative to the mother's blood sugar levels. So you can have a diagnosis of gestational diabetes and manage it really well and not have any increased risk of adverse outcomes. So I always want to frame it that way first, because I think most of the messaging around gestational diabetes is very um, fear focused and uh, worst case scenario. And it's not always, and it doesn't have to be worst case scenario, um, but it, there are risks if things are not well managed. So, you know, elevated blood sugar relatively consistently for many months of pregnancy does impact the child's development. And one of the major impacts is its effect on the fetal pancreas. So exposure to elevated blood sugar the body sees that as an emergency, by the way, it, it wants to keep blood sugar within a certain range. And so 
once baby is at a, you know, the point in gestation where their pancreas is functioning and can produce insulin, maternal insulin doesn't cross over the placenta, that's maternal circulation. So if the baby is exposed to high blood sugar, it needs to manage it itself. And so they start pumping out insulin from their own pancreas. And if this is happening over and over again, day after day, the baby essentially develops insulin resistance themselves. The pancreas grows larger than it is expected to grow because it has to increase capacity to pump out so much insulin. And then the side effect of that is a lot of the side effects we see in the general um, adult population, but it's a little more severe because it's affecting baby at the very earliest stages of development. So in the short term, it can, you know, impact the maturation of the lungs. So it can lead to breathing issues at birth. It can affect their like percent, of body fat. So they have a higher percent of body fat and a lower percent of lean body mass, because again, the body is like insulinemic, hyperinsulinemic, and is trying to figure out where to put this extra fuel and it stores it as fat. So Mm -hmm. the babies can end up kind of large, or they can kind of grow disproportionately large with slightly larger shoulders, which can impact the risk of, uh, you know, birth injury, like shoulder dystocia. Um, And of course that can lead to whether warranted or not recommendations for early induction or C-section and those carry their own risks long-term. One of the bigger like short-term issues is the potential for hypoglycemia at birth. So sometimes people feel like that's confusing. Why would baby's blood sugar be low? But essentially what's happening is, you know, during pregnancy when they're exposed to lots of sugar, all the time, their insulin levels are high. Once they're born, you cut the cord. That cord is what's been supplying them with that consistent high blood sugar level. So these babies are very much sugar adapted um, and their insulin is still pumping out at the same level as usual. So their blood sugar crashes because their insulin levels are too high. And physiologically in late pregnancy, the, the body actually prefers to run at a low level of ketosis and babies are in ketosis or meant to be in ketosis when they're born. And they should be able to, to switch or maintain, um, ketosis, especially in the first couple of days of life before mother's mature milk comes in. The colostrum is a lot lower carb than mature milk. And so babies are physiologically designed to be in ketosis, burning ketones and to readily switch into burning their own fat stores for fuel in those early days, if they haven't been adapted to be fat burners, so to speak, because the blood sugar levels have been so high during pregnancy, this becomes like a metabolic emergency um, right after the cord is cut and they crash. Um, And this is like, people think, oh, hypoglycemia, no big deal. Like it can actually be like life-threatening and affect their, their brain and lots of other things. So it is something that often results in the stay in the neonatal intensive care unit um, if they're not able to get blood sugar levels up quickly with either, uh, you know, glucose or um, donor breast milk formula, um, pumped colostrum, they they can try things to get it up, but depending on the severity, sometimes they do need to, you know, stabilize in, in, in the NICU for a while. So that's certainly, you know, it carries risks, right? Yeah. It sounds massive. And then long-term, of course, there's the metabolic health, you know, how has their metabolism been programmed uh, in utero? So I think that's one of the most important ones to really highlight because all these other things seem temporary. It's like, okay, baby might be a little bigger or I'll have a C-section or be induced, no big deal. Or, oh, they'll go hypoglycemic. They can treat that. It's fine. You know, and and yeah, that's fine. They're short-term. We have, you know, advanced medicine to help with those things. But for me, it's like, it's not just immediately at birth or in those first few days, this is like, that can affect their ability to manage blood sugar the rest of their life. And that's, that's significant. And I guess that's going to impact on brain health, on mood, on all, all sorts of things, the same sorts of things that we're seeing people when they're moving from a high carb diet to a low carb diet, the things that they're noticing, you know, more attention span, more Exactly. Um, 
energy, all sorts of different things. Do you, I don't know, you probably don't know this so much because I guess that the women that are coming to you are um, already predisposed to take action and do something about it. But would you, I just, this is my thinking is that um, women that have gestational diabetes, their diet is probably not that great before they um, get into pregnancy. So they're probably eating quite a high carb diet. They continue eating the same or similar diet while they're pregnant. Um, and at that point, they're probably thinking, why should I change? What's the point? And then, so then the baby has this excess high insulin when the baby's born and the mother then continues with the normal diet because that's what she has been living for the last however many years and therefore that is going to exacerbate what's happening to the baby I guess potentially yeah on it maybe on a quicker scale because maybe she didn't have that in early childhood do you see it like that it potentially Yes, in terms of like the baby is now growing up in a household where the food is not healthy. So that, yes, that will exacerbate and um, quicken their like development of type 2 diabetes or propensity to become overweight or obese. Absolutely, that, that can happen. I will say that there's just a wide spectrum of... Um, gestational diabetes, uh, presentation and cases and predisposing factors. And so sometimes I do have people come in who ate like really well preconception or as, as best as they could during pregnancy, early pregnancy is a bit of a, a crapshoot because of nausea and food aversions. A lot of people naturally are just going to be not eating quite as healthy, um, as they would like to, in during that time of the most severe um, nausea and food aversion symptoms. But some of this has to do with the, what is like the underlying um, issue with their gestational diabetes. So is it, is it a pre-existing insulin resistance situation? I'd say in more of those cases, the typical presentation is you know, being overweight or obese, um, and like poor dietary habits, poor sleep hygiene, um, inactivity, Mm -hmm. more of a typical presentation. I do sometimes have women who are quite healthy and seemingly develop gestational diabetes. And those cases I find are I mean, it does happen. Occasionally there are issues with like insulin regulation. In fact, I have a friend who's very active and developed gestational diabetes in both pregnancies. And she was not overweight going into pregnancy, but her mom has type one diabetes. And so she is a baby of a type one diabetic pregnancy. And I don't think the blood sugar control was all that optimal given what I know about, um, you know, the family history there and, and her mother in, in current times. Um, she certainly was not managing her type one diabetes via like a Dr. Bernstein type approach. Let's Mm. just put it that way. So I think that friend was exposed to high blood sugar in utero and that affected her, like her pancreatic capacity, I guess you could say to adapt to the higher insulin demands in pregnancy. I think she was predisposed from her in utero experience. And that is a known risk factor for gestational diabetes is if your mother had any type of diabetes in pregnancy, when you were in utero. Um, so sometimes we have those cases, um, And one more thing, one more scenario to throw out is that the diagnostic tests are not perfect. Mm -hmm. And so if you naturally eat a low carbohydrate diet and your body is not regularly exposed to large glucose excursions, your pancreas also is not adapted to pump out large boluses of insulin. And so if you do not carb load in the week leading up to a glucose tolerance test, you can get a false positive on the glucose screening. And what I see happening with those cases, and actually that happened to me during my first pregnancy. So I have firsthand experience with this. Um, 
I, I failed the screening test, but not the second one. It, there's all different ways to do the glucose tolerance test. So I don't want to get too into the weeds, but the way in the States that they usually do it is with a small bolus of glucose, small, meaning like relative to the other test, 50 grams of glucose. And the second test is hundred grams of glucose. Um, anyways, sometimes we'll see people quote fail that test, but then when they go on to check their blood sugar in real time with a glucometer, even with testing out higher carb meals, all their blood sugar readings are like picture perfect. Yeah. That's, that's a false positive. Um, and so that can also happen. <laughs> so, um, there are, you know, different scenarios that you want to, um, consider. And I think sometimes it takes, uh, quite a bit of time in clinical practice to see all of these different potential scenarios. I haven't even gone through all of them, but those are probably like some of the top, top three that I see. Yeah. And so when you were pregnant, you had already been eating real food. How, how was your, how was your first pregnancy? Other than the glucose tolerance test. Oh yeah. I write about that actually on my blog. Um, I have a series of two posts. Why, why I drank the glucola and um, I failed the glucola. Do I really have gestational diabetes? If people want to look up those posts to read the the saga in real time. Um, I have a very uh, uncomplicated, low risk uh, pregnancy, really, really smooth. you know, waking as expected. Uh, of course, I had a little nausea in the early part, but nothing super severe. I wasn't throwing up all that often. It was just like nothing sounded good <laughs> in the first trimester. Um, but overall, had a pretty healthy pregnancy. Was able to stay pretty, pretty active, um, and had a really you know smooth, easy birth. Um, second pregnancy was very similar. Uh, pretty smooth pregnancy, a little more tired because I was chasing after a toddler. And so that's a, you can't just like take a nap on the couch whenever you want, you're up on your feet the whole time. Um, so that has its own, you're just going to be more tired in the second pregnancy. I think that's no matter how metabolically healthy you are, um, in that pregnancy, I actually wore a CGM several times, um, in lieu of doing the standard gestational diabetes screening to see where I was at. And it was all totally normal. Um, so, you know, again, another pretty smooth pregnancy, really smooth birth. Both my babies were around eight pounds. So like, uh, healthy, healthy, full-term babies and really no issues. I didn't, I didn't even have any swelling really, maybe like the last week, like a teeny bit of swelling, but I was able to wear my wedding rings the whole time. I didn't go up a shoe size. Um, they were all things considered, really comfortable pregnancies compared to a lot of the ones that, uh, that I've observed. Yeah. Great. So tell us a little bit about what your daily food intake is like. Sure. So, um, you know, full disclosure, I'm, I'm not necessarily keto. I I refer to my, my diet as more like moderately low carb, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, so I do have, uh, whole food carbohydrates. I just, um, pair them with, sufficient fat and protein to, to mitigate, uh, blood sugar spikes, but that, that seems to work, uh, work well for me. So I usually have eggs for breakfast, like maybe two eggs. And, um, sometimes it's just with vegetables. So a little more low carb this morning, I had a shakshuka, which is like a, a spicy tomato sauce with eggs poached in it. Um, other days I might do like eggs and bacon and sauteed spinach. Sometimes I'll pair it with, you know, some leftover roasted sweet potatoes, or I do like a homemade sourdough bread, which barely spikes my blood sugar at all per CGM, which is cool. Um, usually that's enough to keep me full through lunch. Um, I do have like a, you know, a hot beverage with heavy cream in it. So that helps to carry me through, get a little more fat calories in there. Um, lunch and dinner are some variation of the same, which is primarily based around, um, meat or fish or some kind of protein and vegetables. Um, occasionally there's like a higher carb, uh, item in there as well. You know, I do have kids and kids are like (laughs) sometimes picky and just want all the carbs. So, uh, you know, sometimes I'll have some of the higher carb options, but I generally try to keep it to, um, potatoes, sweet potatoes or, or, uh, like a winter squash for the carb option and less heavy on like the grains and, 
and um, pastas and like white rice and kind of things. Those, those don't sit as well with me. So it could be like, uh, you know, homemade uh, grass-fed beef chili with, you know, sour cream, avocado, cheese, salsa, all the fix-ins. It could be um, meatloaf with vegetables. It could be uh, soup. We do a lot of like bone broth based soups. Um, so that's typical for us. And then, you know, eating that way, I don't have a whole lot of cravings for sugary stuff outside of the holidays, right? Because over the holidays, it naturally sneaks in just a little more. But yeah. usually like a dessert of choice is, is dark chocolate. Um, so yeah, low-ish carb, uh, but mostly just focused on, you know, whole foods and really getting a sufficient amount of protein. That is the biggest game changer for me in my health is just getting enough protein, trying to get, you know, 30 or so grams per meal if I can, um, really helps keep me satiated yeah. long-term so that I just don't have those annoying blood sugar fluctuations or um, cravings, you know? So that's, yeah, but I'm not rigid. I also sometimes don't eat the healthiest and then I don't feel great. And then I go back to my baseline of cooking my own food and keeping it based around meat and vegetables. I'm not really super, uh, uh, super stringent or strict. But I think <laughs> that's, you know, that's by that. no, well, I think that's brilliant because you're young and you started when you were young. So if you don't have those health issues that maybe some of us have had as we got older, because we didn't eat that way. Um, you know, it's fantastic that you can do that. And yeah, and yeah, it's still, yeah. you know, it comes down to real food. It doesn't come out of a package. It hasn't got all those right. additives and things in. Grains are kept to a minimal because, let's be honest, they don't, they don't agree with most people most of the time. So, yep, yep. Just... our grains are kept pretty minimal. It's kind of new that we started doing sourdough. I mean, I was grain-free, gluten-free for a number of years, but... My body can handle them fine um, if it's like organic and naturally fermented. So like I have a sourdough recipe on my website and it's like a three-day process to make it. Most of it is just sitting in the fridge. It's not a whole lot of hands-on time for me, but that long-term fermentation really ends up um, significantly reducing the gluten, um, significantly reducing the starch content of the bread. So, uh, you know, when I've worn a CGM, I barely even see a blip with sourdough, put it in, don't put it in the meal. It doesn't even make that much of a difference. So a lot of things end up coming down to quality, yeah. you know, um, over time. Um, and then you're absolutely right about, you know, metabolic flexibility. Like do people have the metabolic flexibility to get away with more carbs or not? I certainly feel fine either way, whether I'm low carb or moderate carb, um, it works fine. I, but I don't have a metabolic need to be in ketosis, you know, my insulin levels are really low and all markers of insulin resistance are right where they should be. Um, so for me that works, but I do acknowledge there's a lot of people where, you know, out of necessity, your body doesn't have the metabolic flexibility to handle more carbs. So I'm really big on people tracking if they can with a meter or a CGM to see what your carb tolerance is and just honor that, you know, and sometimes that can improve over time with other lifestyle changes as well. Um, but so big on a day-to-day -day basis to just keep your blood sugar levels, uh, regulated. Yeah. And fairly you flat. feel the difference when you go off of it. Like I said, sometimes I do, sometimes it is like, uh, we're going to have pizza or something and it doesn't leave me feeling well, you know what I mean? Which is, which is simply, you know, a response to whether it's the poor quality wheat contaminated glyphosate or the gluten or the blood sugar spike. I've come to realize from wearing a CGM a number of times, what I used to attribute to being like, Oh, that's a gluten issue. It's a hyperglycemia issue. Cause I'll have the same symptoms from having uh, too much white rice which results in a significant blood sugar spike. My body is so used to staying kind of like even keel. Flat. Yeah. yeah, pretty flat. And so when it does spike, you know, 50 or hundred points, like it will, if I have, I wrote about this on my blog um, titled CGM experiment where I'm showing like, you know, just my usual baseline. And then I had an oatmeal meal because I wanted to test out what is the sample meal plan 
that the dietitian organizations uh, recommend for an optimal breakfast prenatally. And it's oatmeal, milk, and fruit. Mm-hmm. And so I had that. And my blood sugar spiked 100 points. Wow. And a typical meal would maybe spike me five to 20 points, you know? <laughs> and then, and by spike, I mean, gradually yeah, it just goes line and gradually go down, not a spike. So that left me feeling awful, which, you know, I used to have oatmeal for breakfast every day for years and years thinking that that was a good thing before, you know, I really went more on the real food and lower carb side of things. So we can learn a lot from tracking. That's my very long way of saying that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I've, I've got a friend whose daughter, we spoke about this offline. I've got a friend whose daughter um, was diagnosed with gestational de- diabetes in her first pregnancy. And so I asked her if she had um, any questions that she'd like to put to you. Um, so is it okay if we, if we go through those? Sure. Yep. Let's go through those. So she said, I'm craving sugary foods and treats. Is this causing or caused by the gestational diabetes? I don't know if I would say it's causing or caused by necessarily. I will say there's a a physiological response to imbalanced blood sugar, especially your blood sugar spiking and then crashing, which we call reactive hypoglycemia, is like your a physiological need for your body to raise your blood sugar back up. And it wants to do so quickly because it sees low blood sugar as an emergency. And so if that scenario is happening, which it sounds like it might be, your body will crave more sugar and sweets. Mm. Um, it can also be a response to insufficient protein and fat intake. So if, or, or just calorie intake, if you're not eating enough, And sometimes I see this when people try to follow the guidelines. So the guidelines for gestational diabetes are excessively high in carbohydrates. It is not at all matched to the the needs of the body. And so if you have been trying to follow their meal plan, which is relatively low fat, moderate protein, high carb, and your blood sugar is spiking after those. So your response is to just cut your portions of everything and under eat then you're also going to go hypoglycemic because you're hungry. You're not yeah. getting enough food. Your body's craving and food. The response, the, the optimal response to get out of that blood sugar spike and crash or starvation kind of feeling is to eat more of the foods that don't raise your blood sugar. And so that is your proteins and fats. So like eggs, meat, fish, um, low carb dairy products, like full fat, Greek yogurt, cheese, uh, heavy cream, butter, nuts and seeds, um, non-starchy vegetables. Um, I guess I said protein, so I shouldn't include the non-starchy vegetables in there, but, um, legumes even, yeah, they have some carbs, but they tend to be a little, they, they at least are providing some protein and they tend to be lower glycemic, um, than something like grains. You want to be eating more of those things. Um, as well as your non-starchy vegetables is sort of like your, your filler and your fiber that can help keep you full and not be cutting calories specifically. Mm. Um, that often like solves the issue. It almost doesn't even matter whether it's causing or is caused by a particular diagnosis. Um, there is some data suggesting that you know, higher intake of refined carbohydrates can predispose you to gestational diabetes. So certainly, you know, if you're just stressing out your pancreas so much, because it's always having to pump out so much insulin. Yeah, it can be an issue um, later on in pregnancy and sometimes can result in blood sugar levels in, you know, the gestational diabetic range. But I think the more important place to focus is what can we do about it? Yeah, And so the answer is not eating less. The answer is eating more of the foods that don't spike your blood sugar and then see how much you can get away with, with the carbs. Some women really don't have much room at all for higher carb starchy foods like grains and potatoes and sweet potatoes and high sugar fruits. Um, Others can get away with a a smaller portion as long as it's paired appropriately with enough protein and fat. So that would be probably my biggest question is like, well, what are you eating? Um, And are you getting enough protein? And sometimes that'll solve the problem. Yeah. 
and and then she she went on to say she gets hungry between meals so what should she snack but it goes back to the same things that you mentioned like the yogurts the seeds the nuts the cheese things like that things that yep. you know on a low carbohydrate diet we would be eating as if we were snacking anyway yeah and when you sure. do that you probably don't need to snack anyway it's true right if if you're it gets a little tricky in pregnancy depending on how far along she is or was when asking these questions because as you know the baby gets bigger and pushes on your stomach sometimes it's hard to eat as large of a portion as you would like just because there's no physical space for it and therefore sometimes the smaller meals plus snacks just works for that period of time uh, yeah get that. in an ideal world if you can fitting most of your intake into those three square meals instead of having all the snacks all the time um, and, and if you're able to eat enough to stay full between meals, that's actually optimal for long-term blood sugar regulation, insulin resistance, and just giving your digestive system a rest. But yeah. if you are hungry between meals, certainly eat and make it one of those options you just described that's yeah. providing plenty of fat and protein. Yeah. Um, some of the questions we've already answered, so I, I won't go through them again, but one of the ones she said is she had um, bad heartburn during her pregnancy so she was sticking to quite plain beige foods so she asked what should she be eating to help control her gestational diabetes that don't make her heartburn worse mm. I guess it still goes back to the foods we spoke about and if you're changing your diet then for the most part yeah and sometimes heartburn it can be tricky again just by the dynamics of of everything going on in your system and there's not a whole lot of space for your stomach anymore um, and some of the hormones in pregnancy can relax the lower esophageal sphincter making like acid reflux and heartburn just more common even if you're doing everything right I'll, I'll just throw that out there sometimes it's unavoidable to have some level of heartburn we do see like the that lower esophageal sphincter can relax, tends to relax more when you're hyperglycemic. So if your blood sugar is high, that can actually contribute more to heartburn than if your blood sugar is well managed. And likewise, they've linked too high of an intake of sugars and refined carbohydrates to more heartburn. So if you can keep the blood sugar well balanced by all the things we already talked about, that can often lessen it. It might not prevent it entirely simply because what's going on with pregnancy itself. You can try reserving your fluids to between meals or like 30 minutes before and after eating instead of right at the time that you're eating the food so you don't overfill your stomach with fluids and dilute your digestive juices. Sometimes that can cause more reflux. Um, you can try improving your posture. So if you're not super slouched over, then there's not as much pressure on the stomach. If you sit tall, you give your stomach a little space. Sometimes that can help not reclining right after meals, like basic, like posture and where, you know, your angle of laying down, not eating immediately before bed, but giving yourself time to digest. Um, but it is sometimes just a challenge in pregnancy some people have different trigger foods like spicy or sour or fatty foods, but not everybody has those same triggers. So you could keep a food diary and see if there's things that irritate it. But I would be a little cautious with just going to only bland foods because oftentimes the bland foods are your carbs and starches, right? Mm -hmm. So are there other so-called bland foods that are not carbs and starches that you can rely on, right? Could you find a way to have like, I don't know, a chicken breast with very plain spices and have that as your bland food instead of it being crackers? Um, I sort of, that's where my brain goes, like just be cautious with the bland foods because sometimes things that temporarily help ultimately make things worse long-term. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So thank you because she did have another question, but I'm aware that you're on a time schedule so uh thank you for that and how can people get in contact with you sure you can find my work on my website so it's lilynicholsrdn.com you'll find 
lots of stuff up there, like 250 plus blog posts. Many of the ones that we mentioned, you can use a little search bar to search for CGM experiment or gestational diabetes, or um, I failed the glucola, like pull up whatever blog posts um, would be helpful to you. I have uh, quite a few freebies up there as well, including the first chapter of Real Food for Pregnancy for free. I have a free video series on gestational diabetes, as well as an online course. All of those things are linked there, um, as well as my books are linked out there as well. If you happen to be interested in either um, Real Food for Pregnancy or Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. And from a general stance, for most people, I just recommend the pregnancy one. But if you have just been diagnosed with gestational diabetes, pick up that one. They're very different books. They're complementary resources, but they're very different. One is the gestational diabetes one is very much focused on what to do and to like help you feel calm and confident about managing it where the pregnancy one goes through just everything about pregnancy. Um, And then as far as social media, you can find me at uh, Lily Nichols RDN for the most part on Instagram is where I'm most active these days. Great. And we always ask our our listeners, no, our guests to uh, leave us with three top tips. Now it could be something you've already told us, but maybe you have some other top tips that you'd give to listeners. Ah, top tips. Okay. Uh, tip number one would be fix breakfast, like make your breakfast, something that's not going to spike your blood sugar excessively. (laughs) So sufficient protein being the most important, um, that has carryover effects on your blood sugar metabolism, cravings, hunger level for the rest of the day. And that is the number one place I start with all clients, regardless of why they're coming to me. Um, and if you're, Uh, somebody who's not pregnant and you do intermittent fasting, consider your breakfast, the first meal that you, you break your fast. I just throw that out there. Um, no naked carbs is another one. Um, that's a term that I use to describe, uh, the fact that you don't want to eat carbohydrates by themselves. Otherwise you have a more significant blood sugar spike. And again, this applies to everybody. Um, but if you're having, bread or having potatoes or having fruit, have it with a source of fat and protein. And ideally that, that carb source would also have some fiber in it as well to help mitigate that blood sugar spike. So no bread by itself, pair it with an egg or two, um, put some ham on it, put some avocado on it, put something on it. So it's not just plain bread. Um, You'll be much more satisfied. You'll have much less of a blood sugar spike. So if you're um, not interested or not ready to experiment with low carb at the very least, just no mm-hmm. naked carbs. Um, and then I guess finally to make it like a, a non food one, get to bed earlier. <laughs> so yeah, we stay up late. It completely throws off our circadian rhythms and that affects your blood sugar and insulin Uh, systems for days, actually. Plus, you're probably going to be hungry at night. So if you are looking at having a longer break between food overnight, whether you call it an intermittent fast or not, if you get to sleep earlier, there's no time for nighttime snacks or munchies, you won't be hungry again, because you're sleeping. Yeah. So if we can go to sleep earlier, it's a huge, huge benefit to our metabolic health. Um, I know it's not food related, but a lot of things related to our health are, are not necessarily 100% nutrition. So Absolutely. I'm throw that out there. Yeah. Although great, great tips. Thank you. So Lily, thank you for your time. It's been fascinating talking with you. And I really hope that there are some listeners out there who get great benefit from it. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. I found that a fabulous interview and I've had some past experience with um, birth. I used to be a hypnobirthing practitioner. And so I'm really interested in birth and pregnancy and what mums can do to take more control and feel more in control, which I think is very important as well. So it was great to get some deeper knowledge about gestational diabetes and the nutritional aspects of it. And I think it was great to know that it isn't just 
during pregnancy and that it can be a warning mechanism to mums to start taking her health more seriously, not just for her, but for her baby as well. And maybe you know somebody who might benefit from this advice that we've got here in the podcast today. So please do share the podcast if you if you do know anyone. I know my friend's daughter is waiting for this information and and now she has a resource that she can refer to because in the UK, the NHS are not particularly helpful, especially now that she isn't pregnant. The NHS don't seem to be taking this as a warning for some mums that they need to start making some changes now for their long-term health and for the health of their baby and for future pregnancies. So hopefully you have found this really interesting and fascinating and you can pass it on to somebody. So to find the show notes with all the resources, including the blogs that Lily spoke about, you could go to fabulouslyketo.com forward slash podcast forward slash zero seven one. It would be great if you could support us through Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash fabulouslyketo and you can choose the monthly amount you wish. Can you recommend a guest we can interview? If you can, click on the link in the show notes to send us your recommendation. Would you like to join our Facebook group? Search for Fabulously Keto on Facebook. Our Facebook page is called Fabulously Keto and you can follow us there. Or you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Fabulously Keto. Or follow us on Instagram, Fabulously Keto 1. Did you enjoy the show? Let us know you listened by tagging us in your Insta story or Instagram post using the handle fabulouslyketo1 and the hashtag TFKP. All the links are on the website and in the show notes. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, click the subscribe button. Reviews help us to be found and reach new listeners please leave a review of our show on your preferred podcast listening platform. We appreciate you taking the time and read them all. Disclaimer. The information in this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Nothing in this podcast can be taken as advice. Whether our guests are doctors, healthcare professionals or not, they're only sharing their own opinions and stories and this does not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. It's always best to seek professional medical advice should you wish to make any changes to your current medication or treatments. Also speak to your own doctor if you have any concerns about your health or you wish to make lifestyle changes, especially if you're taking medication.